0: Hello and welcome to History in Reverse, a father-daughter science fiction podcast. Today we will we will be discussing The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. Father Dollar science fiction podcast uh, my name is Caroline I'm here with my father Richie hello and we are continuing our project to read a science fiction book um, every month or two or three or now and then Bye.
1: and <laughs>
0: and uh, talk about it and this month we have read or this time this podcast we have read The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood um, this novel was adapted into several different media versions most recently a show um, neither of us have watched the show and I was putting putting it off actually until after we're done right. uh, with the podcast um, But we both have read the book now. This is the first time. I've read it. Is this is the first time you read it Yeah,
1: it's the first time I read it. We actually belong to some local science fiction book discussion group and both the groups were doing this book as well mm-hmm. so we, yeah, we, we attended uh, and one of them also had shown the movie that was made back in the 90s and we didn't watch the movie, we just saw the very, very end. Yeah. It, it seemed to be quite different from the book's end. Yeah, definitely. It
0: was interesting. So, yeah, so at this point, we've been to two book discussion groups to talk about this. Dad, did you know that I like themes? And I think that there are a lot of them in this book.
1: <laughs> oh, no, really? <laughs> so, as, as a little bit of background of Margaret Atwood, so, of course, and, and anyone can look up the Wikipedia entry. She was born in 1939. She's Canadian. But I did see her speak about 10 years ago. There was a place in New York where had authors come in and talk. And she was one of the guests. And at the, around the time, she had written a book called um, In Other Worlds, which is actually not a fictional book. But it's, a, it's a collection of essays about science fiction writing. And I haven't read that book. I just remember from her talk that she talked about being 10 years old, going to a cabin, and, for, for a summit for a vacation with mm-hmm. the parents and there being no TV no or anything so she would like invent stories and write them down and Aww. she always wanted to be a writer mm-hmm. and if you look at the number of works that she has done she's written quite a lot of mm-hmm. stuff
0: yeah that sounds like an interesting book actually I'd like to read that um, and I know she maybe we'll talk about it towards the end after we discuss the plot she's said before that she just doesn't write science fiction she writes speculative fiction right um, so we'll we'll refer we'll come back to that at the end. Um, so what we're going to do is just sort of talk through, first let's talk about the, the structure of the way The Handmaid's Tale is written because it sort of affects the way we are going to describe the plot.
1: Right, because the it's not really linear. It kind of starts up at a particular point in time and there's recollections
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, to various points in, in, in the past that the, the our, our hero...
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Alfred.
0: Her name is Alfred. Um, in the, I know in the TV show she's named as June in the book, she doesn't ever get that name, she's right. just known as Offred. It's of Fred, uh, so all the handmaids, and she's one of the handmaids, are named for the um, man they're assigned to. Right. And the man she's assigned to is named Fred, so she's
1: of Fred. The so of funny Fred. thing was when I started to read the book and and I saw these names, Offred, uh, of Glenn. it's a strange uh, Scandinavian sounding name. That's names. what I thought! <laughs> <laughs> So I
0: actually have a friend whose last name starts with O F F, and so I like it didn't occur. I didn't know until someone told me that that's what the names meant, and I was like, oh, I completely missed that. <laughs> but it was really, it's really interesting, and it sort of ties into one of the themes of identity, which we'll talk about later. Right.
1: So <laughs> let, let me just say, so the way the, the story starts, she actually you no, know, she doesn't talk about her room. She talks about sleeping at the Red Center, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So she talks about sleeping at a, the Red Center, It sounds to me like it's a, the way it's described, it's all full of women sleeping in carts on a, in a large, like, gym, what mm-hmm. used to be a gym. Yeah. And there's these other women who kind of look after them called the aun- aunts. Mm-hmm. And uh, they kind of sound a little bit like nuns, in, 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 mm-hmm. uh, as they would be described in a, in a Catholic school or something.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. And so that's the first, her first couple of memories are, like, whispering amongst the the women who are sleeping in the red uh, red center and then we i think after that memory we jump right into her room but right, she describes
1: her room so she yeah. again this is kind of basically she describes what her room is and her room is very bare yeah. there's just mm-hmm. a bed and pretty much nothing else mm-hmm. and she describes all the things that were removed Mm-hmm. that clearly could be used to commit suicide with. Mm-hmm. So, like there was no chandelier so you could hang yourself, the mm-hmm. glass was not breakable, mm-hmm. and there were no sharp objects you, or anything.
0: You couldn't open the window wide enough to jump out. Right. All kinds of things like that, yeah. And we, we learn, I think in that first chapter where she's describing the room, that the previous tenant of the room had committed suicide right. in that room. Right. And so she's kind of looking around wondering how, that, how the previous right. handmaid had, had done that. Um, and so we start to get, we start out with her interactions with some of the people in the house, and we have her interacting with the Marthas, uh, in the right. house.
1: And um, story begins. She describes the room. Then she describes a shopping trip. Mm-hmm. Right. So she, yep. so we get a glimpse of what society is like. So she has to. First of all, she describes she's dressed in red with the white wings. With the white
0: wings, yeah. So probably, if you you guys are aware of um, the show. The show does a very has a very nice costume set for the Handmaids, the white wings. I, I think based on the text, it's hard to understand what that means. But having seen the images from the show right. beforehand, I sort of went in knowing it's kind of like a bonnet that comes down over the face so that people can't really see the Handmaid's face, and so the Handmaids can't really see more than like just what's directly in front of right. them. So it's both to shield them from people and from people seeing them, and to shield them from seeing other things and they and they do wear red so color everything is color-coded for your convenience in this story and uh, the handmaids and all things sort of related to the handmaids and fertility um, are red she wears like a long kind of baggy red dress situation right. she goes downstairs and interacts with the Marthas who I, the Marthas wear green if I recall right everybody hey, I don't know if
1: you realize that Martha's in the Bible are the servants
0: oh that's why oh, okay <coughs> that doesn't make sense so, yeah, the Marthas in the house are like the servants, exactly. And they give her some, uh, not exactly money, but they give her tokens to go and tokens and get Tokens in shopping food. list, right? To yeah, in a shopping stuff. list. And she goes out, but she doesn't go alone. She has to meet somebody. So, who does she meet?
1: She has to meet the handmaiden. Hmm. Handmaid. I keep calling him handmaidens. And it, yeah. it really means the same thing, kind of, Kind sort of. of,
0: yeah. I think <laughs> handmaidens is more because, like, historical handmaidens
1: for, like, right. ladies. But, yeah, so she
0: meets another handmaid.
1: Who's... Uh, name is of Glenn mm-hmm. Basically they walk together and when they greet each other they, the greetings are kind of Seem religious.
0: Yes, so this was the first instance. We really first indication we really get that there is a Strong religious presence in this society that we're being introduced to and they yeah, they say like uh,
1: Praise be yeah
0: praise be and all, all sorts of things like that now the thing about it is I Think this is when she starts to talk about the eyes as
1: well. Well and I was just looking at the very first conversation they had
0: mm-hmm.
1: and she mentions the war so apparently there's a war going on
0: mm-hmm.
1: of some sort and apparently they were fighting Baptists mm-hmm. so we the one of the great things about this in it's you know being a dystopia
0: is the the amount of information we get is very limited in terms of what's actually happening in the world and whether or not it's true we really have no idea
1: right because pretty much most of the story is told from a point of view of of the handmaiden
0: right of just Offred, yeah. yeah. So she meets, the thing about meeting with Offglen Off Off Glenn. is that you know, Offred, our narrator, doesn't know whether Offglen is sincere in her actions, that she sincerely believes in what they're doing, or if she's just acting because she has to for safety purposes. And so it's very risky
1: to expose yourself. Right, to have any kind of uh, opinions or right. ask, ask about what else is going on in the world.
0: Right. So they don't, you know, they don't really have any substantive conversation. So she
1: describes the trip that they take. So they go, you know, go to the shops, pick up some food. Mm -hmm. And then they go, there's the wall, Mm -hmm. which is like the place where, I guess, people who have been punished uh, by death are are kind of left displayed Mm -hmm. hanging. Right. And they always go by the wall just to see if there's anything new hanging out there.
0: Yeah. And I think that they go in there there are some bodies the first time they go to the wall. And this is, I think, the first time that Alfred thinks about Luke.
1: Right, so then we get the recollections about what happened in the past. Mm -hmm. So this country, by the way, is called Gilead.
0: That doesn't come up for a long time. The name Gilead doesn't come up for a long time. But yeah, it's called Gilead.
1: So she has a recollection. So we find out that before all this stuff happened, she lived basically kind of a normal life Except that she had an affair with this man named Luke, who was married. He got divorced. He marries her. He married her, and yeah. they have a child. Well, that this is throughout the book and throughout the recollections, we find out mm-hmm. what happened. But one of the things um, she always looks up there. She wants to see if maybe Luke is on the wall. You know, right. She she's believes that he's still alive. Right. And it's totally unclear mm-hmm. what what happened to him.
0: Right.
1: So up to her daughter.
0: And to her daughter, yeah. So she, uh, you know, they finish their shopping trip and go back, and you know she gives whatever the food is and everything to. The daughter. Oh, but something important happens on the first shopping trip. I believe it was the first shopping trip. They see a handmaiden who's pregnant. Right. Do you remember? They they see a handmaiden who's pregnant, very like very heavily pregnant, and everyone kind of is in it's awe. excited. Yeah. Right. They're all kind of like, oh my god, this is this is amazing, and they. And she's like glowing, and like it's like all this like wonderful thing, and that's really the first time we're introduced to the idea that there's some connection here with the handmaidens and and fertility and um, pregnancy that kind of right. thing. Right. Because early on in the story, like that, we don't don't really know.
1: And then there's summer a little bit later after that. There's this whole issue of her going to the doctor to be checked out. Right. Mm-hmm. And and the time for the ceremony.
0: So the doctor she goes to is a man, and he she gets basically a, we read about her gynecological appointment. Uh, it
1: sounds to me like like every time she, uh, she was about to uh, menstruate, or, mm-hmm. or they were trying to determine when it was kind of when when she would be fertile.
0: Right. Right. And the doctor offers her um, his services in having sex with her.
1: Well, right. So I think by then we find out that the purpose of the handmade. Is to bear a child of the commander who's the men mm-hmm. in charge of the house where she stays
0: right, right. so uh, she there seems to be this issue with infertility and what we find out throughout the story is that there's some kind of infertility issue the women seem to be the ones that are bearing the brunt of the blame for the infer- infertility low birth be. rate thing but there seems to be a, a kind of understanding amongst people that like it's also potentially the men having an issue so the doctor When she goes to the doctor, he says, "You know, hey, you know, I've helped girls before. If
1: you need to get pregnant, you know, if you need to get get pregnant,
0: I'm here for you." And she says no because she's a, she's afraid of the repercussions of being caught, but she thinks about it.
1: Right. Right. She's not against. And the repercussions of being caught is being basically killed.
0: Right. So, so she says no at that point. Uh, But that's an an idea that comes up again um, later with another character. So then, basically, oh, you know what else we learned about a little bit early on is the history of the wife.
1: So right, so we we talked, the, we find out a little bit about the the household that she's in. Right. So there's the commander, who's the commander. Mm-hmm. This his wife.
0: This kind of vague commander of we don't know what. Yeah, we
1: don't know. You he know just he's just a commander. To the commander, yeah. And I think, in the little movie that we saw, it implied that he was some kind of military person. But from the book, to me, it seemed like. Uh, you know, basically, that the, the god the man who's the, how, the head of the the house, that was kind of important. Mm-hmm. They would just call him commander because they were all commanders with handmaids.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's uh, they're they're really in the book. There's no distinct tie between the commander and like an actual military, military command. Right. right. So it might it might just be a propaganda kind of word, like some of the other language yeah. in the story that you know that he's he's a commander of the household. Right. Right.
1: So his wife was Serena Joy,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and we find out little bit about her past and it sounds like she was like a televangelist kind of a person Mm -hmm. who used to be fairly well known and and on television Mm -hmm. and stuff
0: and it sounds like she preached for this kind of society that they ended up in about you know uh, purity and and sin and all those kind of stuff and Alfred thinks about the fact that she preached for for all these things and she spoke on having this kind of society having this kind of control and now that they're in it she must hate it so much because it's so bad. And it's kind of like her come up, and it's almost to have to live in the world that
1: she said they should create. Right.
0: And it seems. You, you
1: get feeling of that. I don't think that's entirely. Uh...
0: That offered thinks about that. She, right. That she she thinks it's like ironic almost. But you but, get the sense of the story that Serena Joy is not so happy with. No,
1: no, no. Her she, she's got, she sounds very cynical. Yeah. So this was the worst part of the book for me was the ceremony. That was yeah. kind of.
0: Yeah, Gross. so the ceremony, and this is brings up one of the really interesting questions in the story. So the ceremony is, basically, the commander has to have sex with the handmaid for her to potentially get pregnant by him. And the reason he has to have sex with her for her to get pregnant is because his wife is infertile, allegedly. Or maybe he's infertile, who knows. But they're saying the wife is infertile. So what they do is they have the wife on the bed, and the handmaid sort of, like lays against the wife, like, her back against the wife's stomach, right. like, lays on top of the wife, and then the commander has sex with the handmaid while the wife is behind the handmaid. It's it very sounds, weird. It yes, sounds very, very, very strange. Very
1: strange, yeah.
0: One of the, when we'll, well, we'll get to sort of, like, overarching questions, So one of the questions that the story certainly brings up and Alfred sort of thinks about is, like, is this rape when it's, she sort of, it's like, she thinks, like, she thinks it's not. She specifically thinks, like, it's not because she's, consenting to the situation but can you consent to something that you can't really deny as like a great kind of um, question that the story brings up so because I offered herself doesn't think of it as a rape
1: but and you know later on they do birth in a similar way
0: yeah oh so weird oh we'll get there we'll get there that's like so weird so it's sort of like You know this whole concept of the handmaid being the vessel for the baby, and but the baby really being the wives, right? And And
1: the implication is, from what we hear, is that when if a handmaid gets pregnant and has a child, the child is basically given to the wife, and and that's it.
0: And then the handmaid is, you know, she's completed her task, and and then she can be
1: assigned somewhere else.
0: Yeah, and she won't be sent to the colonies, which are the. So we, the characters are continually, continuously threatened with the concept of the colonies, which are seem to be like a penal colony sort of thing. Right. Lord only knows if they're actual or if they're just a threat. We don't know, right. we have no idea. We get through the ceremony and then we sort of get to other memories are happening of the Red Center. So, right. uh, like of Moira. Well,
1: before we get to that, speaking of the family, so the other thing they do is this reading. Right. so mm-hmm. handmaids are not allowed to have any literature or are not allowed to read. Mm-hmm. Basically, they have allowed no information whatsoever. Right. Right, so that's why, because the story is told from her point of view, we don't quite know what's going on because she doesn't.
0: Right, exactly.
1: Actually, I thought that was really, really effective.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I think it's sort of interesting, too, if you think about it in terms of the other dystopias we've read, like, you know, um, 1984... Is a similar, similarly oppressive dystopia, right. but it's sort of in the opposite, where in 1984 it's sort of like the omnipresence of technology is keeping you down, right. whereas in Handmaid's Tale it's the total lack of technology right. that's keeping you down.
1: Right, so there's TV and stuff, but Handmaid's have no access
0: to right. it at all. They can't choose what channels to watch. So they can't choose, there, there's no way to, she doesn't have access to paper or pencils or anything like that, right. which makes the way she gets the story out very interesting right. at the end. So let's talk a little bit about Moira. So who was Moira?
1: Right. So when she was in the Red Center, Moira was one of the women there, right? Mm -hmm. And they kind of became friends. They went to this elaborate ritual about meeting and talking in the bathroom.
0: Well, well, actually, she and Moira were friends before they went to the Red Center. Remember? No, you're right. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, but yeah, so they would sneak into the bathroom together.
1: So that was the thing. So because they were constantly watched by the Mm ants, there was. It was impossible to have a conversation mm-hmm. that that wouldn't be overheard mm-hmm. so the only privacy they had was in the bathroom mm-hmm. right so they would both kind of go to the bathroom around the same time and they, they develop some signals where one would signal the other mm-hmm. you know come to the bathroom in three minutes or five minutes yeah and there would be in the adjacent stalls and I think they even drilled a hole or something yeah there was a yeah, hole there was a
0: whole, so there was like a way for them to speak to each other in there and they could only even talk for a few minutes at a time uh, but they were able to communicate, and Moira basically said, "I'm getting out of here. I'm not. <laughs> right. I'm not staying here." Um, and she... Moira
1: was sound like very spunky, kind of yeah, not, yeah. Not she... easily accepting.
0: Yeah, and I mean one thing that's co- kind of running through the story too is a uh, you know it has this very heavy uh, religious kind of influence. Um, in the sense that the government has taken advantage of religious texts to use it to control people. It's that's how the story kind of um, unfolds. But there's a very strong homophobia and there's like some of the men who are hanged at the wall are hanged for being homosexual. Moira was a lesbian or something along those lines and she was in the red center and she was kind of seeing this happen and she's like, I can't stay here, this is not going to work. And she did get out.
1: Right, and Mm -hmm. then later on we find out how she did it, but I think she, she tells her after they meet later.
0: Um, I think that ant reports how it happens because you you find out how she gets out pretty early, but then you don't find out what what happened after that. Right.
1: So, yeah, she, so she basically uh, attacks an ant.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: and takes her clothes, dress. You know, it's it, she dresses into different. Uh, it's a different color dress or whatever she puts it on and she walks out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you know she tied up the ant somewhere and then left it behind mm-hmm. uh, uh, something or other in the basement or something.
0: Yeah, such. it was really smart, <laughs> very clever. And she she's able to escape. So for a long time, you know, Alfred doesn't so, see her.
1: Right. So she knows she escaped, but she she so she often wonders. Mm-hmm. But what I found very, um, I don't say spooky, that's scary in the, in the story was how she describes the transition from like our society, like we are today,
0: mm-hmm. into
1: this society. Right. Right. Some of it was very very. Um, like like she describes the day when she. There was a law passed that women are not allowed to have money or mm-hmm. handle money or work.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And she, she didn't, you know, someone didn't call her, tell her about this.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But she went to the store and they would not take her money.
0: Yeah, they She were got to the
1: office and, and they would tell her, you know, you don't, you don't work here anymore leave. Mm-hmm. She still had a husband who supported her, so she, but she basically had to stay home. So all of a sudden, like the whole life was mm-hmm. turned completely upside down.
0: Yeah, and when they, she and the other women who were working with her at the newspaper, I think it was she used to work. Yeah. When they were being fired, the boss was in there. And he's like, "You just, you have to go. You have to go." And he's very nervous. And she could see, in like the other room, that there were these like men with like large guns, basically. The um, guardians. Or something. The, yeah, like the prototype of the of the guardians. Yeah, like it very suddenly went from, you know,
1: normal to normal, normal
0: to, one day it just wasn't anymore. And at this point when the story, we're starting to give more background about the transition um, from, you know, U.S. government to Gilead, and more about Luke, and she remembers a lot about the day that they tried to escape. Right. So one thing about Gilead was that they would not, under the new regime, accept the marriage between Luke and Alfred because Luke had been married before. Oh, he, right. And yeah, he and was divorced and they wouldn't accept right. divorces and so they kind of, Luke and Alfred kind of saw that this was an issue coming down the pipeline with the fact that their marriage and, their, and then their child right. uh, would not be um, acceptable and that they would ultimately be separated due to this
1: right. impure, uh, them living together situation. Right. And uh, they got fake papers, you know, mm-hmm. falsified papers, passports so they could go to Canada. That's funny. You know, I just realized that Margaret Atwood is Canadian, so naturally they were escaping to Canada. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So they were, and they were, you know, they put their daughter in the car, and the mom, and they were
1: pretending like they were just not just going going on a a trip. Trip.
0: Yeah. And offered like drugs her daughter so she sleeps and stuff, so she doesn't cause a fuss. But they're somehow they're found out. It's kind of unclear. Right.
1: Right. So they basically they get to the border and somebody takes the papers, starts looking at them. And then it's clear that, that they realized the papers were f- faked. Mm-hmm. Um, so they try to run away. They basically drive away from the border point and try mm-hmm. to sneak across the border and they get captured. Yeah. And after that time, Alfred doesn't know what happened to Luke or her daughter. Right. And she constantly keeps, you know, like when they walk walking past the wall, she often looks to see if she can, if Luke will show up on the wall. She believes he's alive, but she doesn't know. Mm-hmm.
0: She has an interesting memory at some point, too. And I'm not quite sure where this fits in, but she has a memory of being in a supermarket before the transition into Gilead, being in a supermarket with Luke, and her daughter was in the, like, cart in the Mm -hmm. seat. And she, like, turned around to get something, and she turned back, and her daughter was gone. And a woman had, like, snatched her. And they were able to catch her and get her back. But it was, like, one of the earliest things that Alfred remembers as being, like, one of the first early signs of there being this idea of like this kind of like frenzy to get children because it seems like the infertility kind of issue was setting in right and as that was setting in desire to take children and to have children oh i see was growing yeah, into I remember a frenzy
1: that. i didn't think of it that way yeah but that yeah. makes sense yeah
0: and it was like one of like the early things she remembers
1: so around this time i think i, I told you i've read this book um the captive mind mm-hmm. which is written by this polish writer who writes about a couple of his friends and how they were changed by uh, living in Poland during World War II. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he talks about in it is this transition from like normal life to all of a sudden everything just gets turned upside down. Mm-hmm. And it's that's why I found this part of this book scary because it reminded me of that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We think that everything is nice and, and normal and all mm-hmm. of a sudden something happens you don't expect and all of a sudden all the old stuff is no longer relevant.
0: Right, exactly. So we get those memories kind of in the middle of the story, and then we come back to the regular life of the Handmaids and. I Offred think the next kind going of going to the birth, right? right?
1: The birth is the
0: yeah. Ugh, ugh. Ew. <laughs> it's it's not that birth is gross. Birth is fine. The way they do it is weird. So there's a woman who Offred knew beforehand as Janine, who's now known as Off Warren. Off Warren, of Warren, I thought, yeah, and. Janine's had a rough life we get some details about Janine's life throughout and that when she was at the red center she was she was embarrassed in front of the group because she would uh, cry and part of that was like she had previously been the victim of sexual assault and Mm. she would say like it was my fault so they were like very much there's a very much a feeling in Gilead that things related to sex whatever they are are the woman's responsibility whether it's their own sexual assault, their own infertility, or even a man's infertility, it's the woman's fault. Um, men being attracted to them is their fault. Everything's put on the women, which is, a, of course, a way to control women. If you, right. you can more or less subjugate half the population, you have much more control. It's not surprising in a dystopian society that that would happen. So Janine gets pregnant, right. as she's supposed to, and she's going to have her baby. And the birth is this whole like huge...
1: It's they, a ritual, like all the handmaids go and join, yeah. hang out, you know, it's like a little party. Mm-hmm. The wives come and, and have a little party. Yeah. When the actual birth happens, the wife has to be present there. So they have like, yeah, like this double birthing, birthing stool. Yeah, so oh.
0: it's super weird. So it's like the <laughs> one thing about it is Offred gets to talk to people there because it's so noisy with all the handmaidens that she's able to speak to the handmaidens directly next to her and they, they can share information. Right. Um, she doesn't learn too much at this birth, but some, she's able to tell someone else something, because someone else is looking for another person. So you kind of get the the idea that probably most of the handmaids remember what it was like. Yeah, that's like a whisper framework,
1: a whisper network rather, yeah. am, amongst the, the...
0: Yeah. So, um, the birth happens where, so Janine goes into labor, they put her in like a chair that's, it's like two chairs. It's a birthing stool. It's a birthing stool, and then but above the birthing stool and attached to it is another birthing stool. She goes into labor, and the wife, yeah, the wife who's gonna get the baby ultimately, is sits behind her and pretends like she's giving birth. It's very strange. Yeah. And then the baby's born, and then the wife runs over to like a like a bed, like a hospital bed, and she's given the baby right away. So like Janine never holds the baby or anything along those lines, and then.
1: I think the normal procedure was that the handmaid would. Uh feed the baby breastfeed or something for, for a while. Yeah. And then when baby was weaned, she would be reassigned.
0: She'd be moved somewhere
1: else, right? Because they don't want her to have the attachment to the child.
0: Super weird. Very strange. We find out later... So the baby initially is born as a girl and it looks fine. So one of the concerns is that it's going to be deformed.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. And again, I wasn't clear to me what, what, what they meant by deformed and what do they expect.
0: They, they called it... So the word they used was shredder. They called babies shredders. I don't know if that means you take the baby and then you shred it. It's meant for the shredder. I don't know. I don't right. know what the, the term means exactly. We never get a lot of details as to what kind of deformities are happening, or really why the infertility is happening, which just kind of, it just, you know, science fiction, it right. is. It's happening. So the baby seems fine. It's a girl. And I, they, I forget they named the baby or whatever. You find out that sometime later that um, apparently the baby turned out to be a shredder. And everyone says that Janine, it happened because Janine che- cheated on the commander and she used a doctor. And that by using the doctor is why the baby was a shredder, because she sinned or whatever. So again, all these things are, are blamed on the women and the handmaids.
1: So we haven't mentioned Nick.
0: Yeah, so who's Nick?
1: So because mm-hmm. commander is very important, he has a car and a chauffeur.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the chauffeur's name is Nick. and. You know, in the beginning, as she walks past Nick, they always kind of steal. Glances at each other. Sometime after the birth, I think, when she comes back from a shopping trip, Serena Joy is sitting in the garden in front of the house. Mm -hmm. And she calls her over. Gives us a cigarette. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (coughs) Because normally, of course, we're not allowed to smoke. Yeah. And she says, I have a deal for you. Mm -hmm. And... uh, she says, you know, the commander thing in the baby is not happening.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So maybe you know Nick can help. Yeah. And uh, if you do this, don't say tell anybody. But I will uh, find out some about something about your daughter. Mm-hmm. Right. And of course, then well, that was that was was joy. Right. We forgot the part where Commander asked her to come and visit him.
0: Yeah. So it's the timeline <coughs> is very unclear. I, I forget which things happened first. So yeah, that. Serena think, Joy happens after the birth. I think you're right, the commander happens first. So prior to the birth, maybe? At some point in time, the commander tells Nick to tell her to come to his office, office. Now like the handmaid the is after after Yeah. The handmaid is not supposed to be with the commander by herself. Because one of the things about this whole ritual or whatever, is that the the handmaid's not supposed to be an object of sexual desire. Not right? person, essentially. Yeah, exactly. She's a tool to to create a child and she you know, so she's breaking the rules by doing this, but he's summoning her and Alfred Alfred's very intelligent, Alfred's very curious and she's always kind of looking for opportunities and looking for things she can do. So she says, Okay, he wants me to go. I'm gonna go and see what this is about And what's the first activity they do together in his office?
1: They play Scrabble.
0: Yeah, <laughs> he just wants somebody to play
1: Scrabble with,
0: <laughs> and she figures she's gonna go and do some like crazy sex thing, or it's gonna be like some kind of like ridiculous. And he like literally just wants to play Scrabble,
1: right? Um, so they do, and he lets her see some magazines so she can mm-hmm. read. The only thing that he insists on for that's physical is that he wants her, her to kiss him mm-hmm. when she leaves.
0: As if she wants to,
1: right, right. And they start doing it like almost every night. Oh, oh, there was the signal that that, that he yeah. arranged with Nick. Like if Nick had wear his hat to the left. Or oh to yeah, the left, something. something like
0: yeah, that. it was some like little thing <laughs> that they did. So she she had been going to see him, and one thing she thinks about is you know he must have he must have done this before. Like this, I can't be the first one. And there's actually evidence of that with the, the little Latin phrase.
1: So uh, pseudo Latin.
0: Yeah. So earlier in
1: the story, in the closet. I right, so in, early in the story, she describes the, her room like in gory details. Mm-hmm. And she said when she first got there, she would imagine being just in the room and there's nothing to do. So she would basically examine the whole room like in minute details. Yeah. And she found this phrase carved in a corner in the floor. Yeah, I forgot
0: where it was. Somewhere hidden in the
1: room. Somewhere hidden, and it said, Roughly translated, it was like a pseudo Latin, and, and basically it said, "Don't let the bastards get you down."
0: Mm. But she didn't know what it meant. She just saw the Latin, right? So she memorized it, and then one night with the commander, he was showing her a yearbook or a some something, something. some book or something, and she saw the phrase again in Latin, and she was like, "Oh, like, what's that mean?" And he's he like laughed, and he's like, "It's a joke because it's kind of like." Pig Latin or pseudo yeah. Latin or whatever, and it means don't let the bastards grind you down. And that's when she sort of makes the connection like, oh, there's there's been another handmaid in this seat before doing this who carved that in the room for me to see. Right. And it's kind of interesting the way that that kind of communication goes across time.
1: Right. You know? That's a, a well, that's what writing is, isn't it? Oh, man.
0: I'm getting real metal <laughs> over here. <laughs> I get it. <laughs>
1: there was also a scene, now I forget now where it. Fa- uh, Fell into the story where she fell asleep in the in the closet.
0: Oh yeah, and the poor Martha. So so she falls asleep in the closet. What it was after something happens.
1: Maybe after the birth or something.
0: Yeah, something happens. She goes to her room and she goes in. I think the closets where the thing is carved, where that mm-hmm. phrase is carved, and she accidentally falls asleep there. And she wakes up the next morning and she terrifies one of the Marthas. Uh, and the Martha, like, screams and drops So the tray. Martha
1: brings her breakfast every morning. Right.
0: And the Martha thinks, because appa- apparently that's how, that's where the last handmaid had committed suicide. Right. It was in the closet. And she's the, the poor Martha. She's scared witless the rest of the day. Right. And, they, and But because the Martha drops the tray and breaks something, they basically make a deal that Martha the Martha won't mention that she was sleeping in the closet, and the handmaid won't mention that she broke something. Right. And so nobody finds out about it. But it was like, yeah, it was it was very interesting. So she's, she's, then she kind of develops a relationship with Nick. This is the part of the story that gets fuzzy for me.
1: Right, so she goes to Nick, and Nick, you know, fulfills his uh, mm-hmm. duty.
0: Yeah.
1: But he doesn't seem to be that much into it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. It's like, uh,
0: yeah.
1: I guess the Serena Joy kind of must have given him something. And I think Serena Joy at one point shows her, Photograph of her daughter. Yeah. Right.
0: And she she sort of um, offers doesn't. It's like she doesn't recognize her, but she's kind of like shocked by how right. much she's grown right. and how different she's and how and she thinks about how her daughter doesn't know who she is, at all. If if she even thinks she's alive. Right. You know.
1: Right. Then there was the whole thing with, the, the section called Jezebel.
0: Before we get to Jezebel, we've completely forgotten to talk about Mayday.
1: <laughs> oh. <laughs> Well, we talked a little bit about the the whisper campaign amongst the the Handmaids. So mm-hmm. apparently, there's some kind of resistance movement, and Mayday is, is is its name, or it's like
0: its a word. Name, yeah. So one um one of the Handmaids. What she was walks it? With?
1: What was it in 1984? The Brotherhood.
0: Yeah, the Brotherhood.
1: It's, it's the Brotherhood again. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> so May Day is this like network of you know among the Handmaids and stuff
1: to. It like, sounds like a resistance movement. That, yeah. That, that, Maybe something rescues Penmains or yeah. something. It's not clear.
0: And so, Offer thinks about you know once she finds out about it. She one of the women she h- interacts with, um, Off Glen. Yeah. Off Glen, the one she walks to, walks with to shopping every day. Off Glen is the, like, the first one that really tells her about it. I
1: think there's like an interesting scene when they go in front of this printing shop. Mm-hmm. Or something, yeah. And there's some interesting technology described in the, in the window, like typewriters or some or electronic typewriters. Mm-hmm. Um, and
0: oh, right, the um, oh gosh, wait, it's like the prayers or whatever they can, you can like call in like a certain number of prayers to be printed.
1: Right, machines, right,
0: right. And like the wives all do it because it like makes them look better in the eyes of the other wives and stuff. It those like totally. Oh
1: ridiculous. right! Yes, yes, yes.
0: But there, there is actually another. You know, like, that's a scene where the two of them want to talk freely to each other, and they go stand in front of that store because they believe that that store is not near microphones, right? And it's not near other people who can see them. So that's uh, kind of interesting. You know, the the eyes and the campaign of
1: right. So that the, them being we watched. didn't talk about this society structure, but yeah, they're being surveilled all the time. So let talk about Jezebel's. So
0: yeah, so Jezebel's is a section of the story where. The commander wants to go out.
1: Yeah, and he gets out a dress.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> with feather boas. <laughs>
0: exceptionally gaudy dress. <laughs> and um,
1: shoes with spikes.
0: Yeah. So they, you know, and she's kind of like, you know, a little surprised by the dress when everybody more or less sneaks her out. And they go to a bar or hotel. It's,
1: it's like an old, it used to be a hotel. Yeah. Right. And, you know, he has to sneak her out, she has to hide and
0: he, like makes her lay down in the car right
1: right Or maybe he also gave a different color
0: yeah so he so she wears the like gaudy boa dress but then he also puts like another layer of something on her like a different color dress to, to hide her but then he also makes her lay down in the car so it's like it there's, there's a few layers of hiding it's again clearly he's done this before
1: right you know? yeah, yeah and so they go to this it's like a nightclub in a hotel essentially yeah And there's other women there and other men, and Mm -hmm. and they're partying, Mm -hmm. sort of.
0: And they see Moira.
1: And she sees Moira, and Moira sees her, and they kind of uh, signal each other to do the bathroom thing. Mm -hmm. So they meet in the bathroom again, and Moira tells her more about what happened to her after Mm -hmm. she left the center. And, of course, then the commander and and the handmaid go into the room Mm -hmm. to uh, try to make more babies, Mm -hmm. right?
0: But it seems to be more, w- w- like, d- doing it without the ritual portion seems right. to be, like, right. more like, like, a- actual, like an actual sexual encounter as right. opposed to, like, oh, this weird ritual situation.
1: Did they go out more than once to their...
0: I think just once. Was there also a marriage ceremony at some point? Was it, like, a wedding? Was right, like- there
1: was a wedding and there was the, the salvaging. I think there was... The right, let's talk s- about the salvaging. Yeah. So the
0: salvaging is... This kind of goes to what we were talking about in our last podcast with Hunger Games, and something I think we see a lot in dystopias is the use of language to describe things in a way that makes them sound exceptionally different than they are. Mm-hmm. You know, salvaging doesn't sound bad. Handmaid doesn't sound bad. You know, this wife doesn't sound
1: bad. Right. These things
0: don't sound bad at all. The salvaging is like the handmaids tearing someone apart.
1: And essentially, him. it's like a killing. Yeah. Yeah. A ritual killing, essentially, what it yeah. is. Yeah. So, what was the... what were they killing him? Although some, some was people... Was he a came...
0: rapist? I forget.
1: Yeah, well, I think one of. Is yes,
0: be... There's some alleged crime. they said, right. like, this person did the bad thing to a handmaid. Now all the handmaids kill him. Right. And it's exceptionally violent. I'm, I'm really curious to watch the TV show to see how it is depicted in the mm. TV show, if it is depicted in the TV show. And it's sort of, there's this idea that... It's not, not in the story proper, but in the epilogue. It's sort of talked about as this way to allow the handmaids who are very, very, very repressed humans to express their feelings and their anger in sort of one moment. Right, and um, directed at somebody. And directed at somebody. And I think it's very akin to... Have you, you haven't seen the Purge movies, have you? No. So the Purge is a, is a series of horror movies. It's the idea is that for one day every year you can kill anybody you want. I see. Or do any, or do any crimes you want. Yeah. Most people kill people. And the whole, that whole concept is, you know, we need to be able to release, and only through a release can we, right, not, nice you know, be nice. nice, right, exactly. So it's kind of that same idea, which is, is interesting.
1: So okay. that was also that same way there was a wedding, I think, yeah, where where like, a where, like the heroes, soldiers who came from the front, mm-hmm. got assigned wives,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, actually, yeah, you're right. We can finish the story. So what mm-hmm. happens then? So there's a bunch of stuff going on. She goes visits the. Commander Amanda, and then she's having mm-hmm. an affair with Nick, and then one evening a van shows up
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they take her away, yep, typically, when a van shows up and takes a handmaid away, it's bad,
0: yeah, typically, when a van shows up and takes anyone away, it's bad right well so what she sees actually earlier in the story at least on one occasion, a van snatched somebody off the street right when they're out right. shopping right. and generally that's considered very bad. <laughs> But and she has reason to believe that it's, it's here to save her.
1: Right. Again, from the text of the story, it's not clear. Right. So let's talk about the structure of society. Sure.
0: So we kind of talked a little bit about these different roles that are assigned. So for the men, there seems to be commanders. Right. They get the fancy wives. Then there seems to be like other people who get what are called econo-wives.
1: Right. They sound like they were soldiers who...
0: Yeah, so the wives themselves wear blue. Everything is color-coded, like I said before. The wives wear blue. Right. The Akana wives wear striped dresses. Um, we only see them fleetingly. We don't really right. ever t- talk to an Akana wife. The handmaids like, wear right. red. They are The handmaids are only assigned to the commanders. Right. The marthas, which are the servants, wear green. Right. The ants wear brown?
1: I think brown, yes. Yeah,
0: this so the ants are the people that train the handmaidens at their red centre.
1: And the wives were blue.
0: Yeah, the wives were blue. And then there's guardians and there's angels. It seemed to be soldiers or guards.
1: Right, the different kinds of guards. I think the angels sounded like the guards who were who were guarding headmaid Mm -hmm. handmaids, especially at the the Red Center. Mm Mhm. And the guardians were just like random guards.
0: Yeah, it was kind of unclear. And then there are eyes, which are the spies. Spies, right. You know, which could be anyone. And as we kind of mentioned before, there's some kind of infertility happening in this whole thing in Gilead. And right. it's... it's it's the That's probably the most science fiction portion of the story, is the hand-waving of like, and then chemicals made us infertile. Right. You know, oh, pollution. <laughs> like, I did some... For a science fiction reason, no one's having babies. That's basically the premise.
1: Right, right. And that that's never really explained. So I mean we joke around this because in most of the other stories the main character takes a break and reads a book that explains everything. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well oh. in this one instead we go to a conference in the epilogue. <laughs> and the conference is about Gilead. Right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, so shall we talk about the epilogue? Then?
0: Yeah, let's just let's talk about it because we sort of talked about the structure and stuff. So the so the epilogue t- oh, I forgot how many years afterwards it is, it's, but it's, it's, it's after, quite a while after. Right, so it's after the fall of Gilead. Isn't? Yeah. So what we learn from that is that the reason of the rise of Gilead was because of this infertility. It's blamed generically on pollution. It seems to have been with white women. Like specifically
1: hmm.
0: so there's a there's a racial component in the story that isn't really explored and I think that's just because of the lens we have the very right. close
1: point of view well so the thing that we when we were discussing this at our book discussion group somebody pointed out that if you look at the names of the scientists in the epilogue they're mm-hmm. all like Native American yeah names. all
0: the speakers are native or have Native American names yeah so there's a really interesting there's definitely something going on there I just don't quite know
1: right. what so one of the things they discussed in this conference at the end, they also discussed the origin of this text. Yes. Right. So it turns out that apparently they found cassette tapes.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, somewhere in Maine, in some house. Mm-hmm. And the cassette tapes looked like music tapes, but they were just disguised recordings by Offred, mm-hmm. basically telling a story.
0: Right. And a, there was a, quite a lot of them. They, I forgive right. me. They said, but they, there's quite a lot of them. So, we know that she at least. Well, I mean, I guess we don't know if she made it to Maine because we know the tapes made it there, but we don't know right. when she made them or, or.
1: Well, she certainly had enough time to make them. Right? right. So she was probably free for some some period of time.
0: Well, as long as she was in Gilead, she wasn't free. She would have been in hiding. Right. So the question is, did she actually make it to Canada, which was the goal, right? To to cross the border into, into not Gilead. I don't know. I'm back and forth on it. Like whenever I think about it, I th- like I try to think like theme wise, what fits better. It's a very Lady and the Tiger kind of thing. Have you what ever do you read? Mean, no. Um, you ever read the short story of The Lady and the Tiger? Maybe. It's a uh. They make you read them, like, in like middle school. It's it's uh, I forgot who who the author is. La- the Lady and the Tiger is basically a princess has a love affair with like a lowborn man and her dad finds out so he puts he's like you know no, I'm not not doing this so we're taking this this man and we're gonna put him in a in a coliseum in a ring and there's two doors and behind one door is a tiger and if the tiger comes out the tiger's gonna eat him and behind the other door is another woman and if he picks that door he has to marry that woman either way princess you don't get to be with him mm. and princess finds out beforehand what's behind which door. And when he's in the Colosseum, he looks at her and she points to a door. And then the story ends. And the question oh, see. is, which what did one she which pick? Door she... So yeah, the question in The Lady and Tiger is, which door does she pick? Right. That's the point of the story, you know, it's like, if you, you know, what's That's a what...
1: possible choice and it's left to you.
0: Well, I think if you believe that she truly loved him, you would have <clears throat> think that she wanted him to live and be with whoever else would be alive. But it kind of depends on how you read the princess's character. Right. So, it's, it, this is similar. It's like, do we need an answer? Does it matter? Not yeah. really. Yeah. It, I don't know. I've been trying to kind of parse it out in terms of thematically.
1: She's doing a LEM. Oh, God. Well, <laughs> <laughs> <It's> just...
0: <laughs> oh, this goes back to LEM, doesn't it? <laughs> <Always>. <laughs> I tend to think Offred did not make it out. Because I tend to think that while she had time to make these tapes, I find that the tapes being left in Maine, which would have been part of Gilead...
1: Well, it's not clear because they could have found them hidden in some house in Maine after Gilead fell, right?
0: Well, then where were they in the interim? So I, I, I just think that the, we don't have a lot of evidence. But the evidence we do have is that Gilead seems to be particularly powerful. It's hard to escape. And the tapes are found within the borders of Gilead if she really wanted to record her story and share it with people who would listen at the time that she existed, leaving them in Gilead wouldn't make sense. Well,
1: maybe she, you know, as uh, she was escaping, sense. you know, she made the tapes and then perhaps the last part of the journey was in a little kayak and she couldn't take anything with her.
0: Possibly. So but
1: I'm an optimist, so I think she did escape.
0: <laughs> <so>. <laughs> I just think I think it it for me it's it makes I think it, it's a little bit more thematically cohesive if she doesn't escape, in that she's just kind of, she's just one of the handmaids. She's not she's not special. She just happens to be the point of view that we have. Right. So and the point is kind of like a dystopian society that crushes everyone crushes everyone.
1: Hmm.
0: You know Winston Smith, is crushed by Big Brother. Right. You know not he's not he's not unique. He's just our point of view into the society. So I don't know, but I don't know. So let's talk about it in terms of a dystopia. Cause we'll leave, so that's the plot. Now there's the plot and the story. Dystopia scale from 1984 to Brave New
1: World. Well, it's very 1984 ish, right? Yeah. There, there's a war going on, you know, yeah. so that's one of the excuses for all this stuff. Uh, there's been some kind of what seems like a natural disaster that prevents children being born. Mm-hmm. So they have this weird structure. <laughs> there's some influence of religion. Um, it's interesting that she doesn't say. Which sects there might be that they do mention killing Baptists, mm-hmm. right? So it's yeah. not Baptists, and it's not even clear that it's necessarily Christian, mm-hmm. although that, that he, read that the commander reads the Bible,
0: right? But there's there's so the interesting way that religion is used is like, Alfred seems to remember, that some passages of the Bible before this whole Gilead thing, and she knows at the Red Center that some things they're reading are wrong, that they've been edited. So it's not, it doesn't seem to be, whoever's like spearheading Gilead doesn't seem to be like someone who is genuinely, or a group that is genuinely concerned with like the truisms of faith or whatever, because you know, then you wouldn't be editing your holy right. text. Right. It seems to be being used as a tool from, from the limited amount we get to see of what uh, what is being said. It's not really a lot of technology. Yeah, there was...
1: Right, so this is the question, is it science fiction or not? And Hmm. Margaret Atwood herself said about this book that it's speculative fiction. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And, you know, what's the difference? Eh.
0: Right, exactly. I mean, you can
1: get persnickety about stuff like that, but, you know, what's the point?
0: I mean, I think by nature of being a dystopia, it has to be science fiction, because dystopia is a type of science fiction,
1: right? Well, dystopias such as dystopias.
0: I think that dystopia is a subset of science fiction. What well, other kind of dystopia is there it has it has to be science fiction to be a
1: dystopia'm trying to think of uh, Gulliver's travels I suppose you could even consider that a little bit of science fiction yeah, right? I think so, and fantasy
0: yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting <laughs> because these lines kind of get blurred, but it's it really in this story it's the lack of technology that's kind of jarring, especially thinking about you know if Alfred went from living in a society more or less like ours right you know where you have the internet the touch of your fingertips on your phone right, right I mean we're sitting in a room right now and there's dozens of pieces of technology around us and to go from that to an empty room an empty is. room oh god I'd be so bored it's pretty jarring and I think that that I, I wonder if science fiction because science fiction contemplates often new technologies or changes in technology I wonder if technology regression and the removal of that technology is also a science Actually, fiction thing. Actually,
1: probably, because uh, you can think of the, this whole genre of these things where you travel backwards in time into the mm-hmm. Stone Age.
0: Right. That, so it's similar, yeah. It definitely is. I would consider it science fiction, I think. Would you, can, you think it's science fiction?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I'm not that uh, particular.
0: And themes. You want to talk
1: about themes? <laughs>
0: I always want to talk about themes. There's so many. I'm so happy. <laughs> <laughs> so the first thing I want to say about this story is that this is a story that has absolute high literary merit. And I think I've mentioned this before in the podcast, that that's an extremely difficult thing to identify. And I, last time with The Hunger Games, I was just able to say that doesn't have high literary merit.
1: Yeah, it this... was kind of what I found kind of funny, because when we talked about the voice in which the book is written, Large chunks of this book are written in this historical present.
0: Right, the present tense, yeah.
1: So and that was my games. complaint <laughs>
0: about the Hunger Games, yeah.
1: <laughs> but here, I found it really effective.
0: Well, because she uses it for a purpose. Because so much of the story is memory. Mm-hmm. When she remembers things, it's in the past tense, and then when things are happening, it's in the present tense. So there, there's a, there's a consciousness to it that is very effective, and I think does sort of put you in the moment with Offred. That, that does work. The writing is beautiful in the story, and I could sit here and go through hundreds of. Quotes. I highlighted like half of this book on my Kindle when I was reading it. It's if you if you haven't read it, if you don't read it for any other reason, but that the writing is beautiful. Someone at one of our book discussion groups, I think Charles uh, said something along these lines, and I thought it was very apt. The narrator has a very strong character, and a very she has an interest in language. She the narrator herself has an interest in language. This is probably a reflection of Margaret Atwood having yep. an interest in language. But the narrator has an interest in language and in images and in thought and in connections between things. And it comes through in the writing and it is a pleasure to read it just because of the But what it's like
1: it puts the image in your head. Right. Oh, yeah. So I did not want to watch the movie or anything just mm-hmm. not to have prejudice, kind of not mm-hmm. the image. But like when she describes the empty room, you see the empty room. Oh,
0: absolutely. Wait, now I'm opening my
1: Kindle to find this. <laughs>
0: I was open to a, to a quote before. So there's, there's a lot of stuff with color and I'll get to color in a minute um, as a motif, but this is just an example of some of the writing. This is very early on in the story. She's outside in the summer describing the garden and she says, the tulips along the border are redder than ever opening no longer wine cups, but chalices thrusting themselves up to one end. They are after all empty. When they are old, they turn themselves inside out then explode slowly, the petals thrown out like shards. Come on. Right. That's so good. Right. That's so loaded. And it's like the, the language and the use of images and things like that. And I mean, this is clearly a, a metaphor regarding fertility and, right. and everything like right. that. And the handmaids, you know, wearing <clears throat> red, and the tulips being red, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's not all that complicated. But the use of the language... To draw those kinds of pictures and make those kinds of comparisons is one is what gives gives it high literary merit in my opinion, mm-hmm. and it's what allows there to be themes. It allows it to it allows the story to be trying to make a point. So um, I made a big list of themes, but I'll just pick a few. I think identity is probably one of the biggest themes, and that kind of is related to individuality versus the collective as well. So Women particularly, the men too, but to a lesser extent, but the women particularly are literally color-coded for your convenience. So you can know who they are. This is a handmaid. They're color-coded. So like this is a handmaid. She wears red. This is a Martha. She wears green. This is a wife. She wears blue. And that kind of organization of people eliminates identity. Right. And one thing Alfred struggles with is trying to remember who she was, Right. and who and trying to figure out who she is now. Right. Um, so identity is definitely a huge thing. The fact that Moira escapes by dressing up as an ant and getting out right. is like taking advantage of the understanding of identity within the society.
1: It's actually interesting. You can you can she just puts the clothes on the of somebody else, and all of a sudden you. Some, completely different person right? mm-hmm, exactly. completely different rights and everything.
0: It kind of has an interesting historical parallel. So back in the day, when women and men's clothing were much more strictly adhered to, like women like, didn't wear trousers, for example, mm-hmm. when, there's a lot of historical examples of women who would just dress up as men and just pass as men. Because no one ever even thought that a woman could wear well, men's I'm clothing. Well, I'm 12-night. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like No one even thought, it didn't even cross their minds. That a woman could wear like a suit or like armor or something like that right. and there's I've actually have a friend um, on the interwebs who does a lot of uh, research into LGBT history and so she posts a lot about it so I read a lot of her things and there's like a lot of examples of women who just dressed up as men and just lived as dudes and nobody ever thought about it because the clothing is how they identify the person
1: mm-hmm. as opposed right. to
0: like the individual, and it kind of has to do with class and things like that. Right. That and then I'll just talk about two more. So individuality versus the collective. There's kind of this interesting idea going on in Gilead that like this institution of the handmaids had to happen because otherwise we would not have enough children for society to continue.
1: And well, I think you jump into conclusions. You assume mm-hmm. that that's why they're doing it, right?
0: I think that they say in the epilogue that they were having Maybe. they were having a they were having a serious population crisis and you know maybe they maybe they could have reconstituted their society to deal with fewer people but they didn't want to they wanted to continue their society so they they created this whole scheme to try to support it you know it's obviously this is written as a dystopia and everything like that but kind of the idea of how you value your own individual autonomy and choices versus how you value the collective Right. That you live in, and right. how people give up things for that collective, willingly or otherwise. Right. And it's it's kind of a wartime kind of theme.
1: Right. And again, that goes back to 1984, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of the things that that they were able to impose on people was, well, it's for the war effort. Mm-hmm. Exactly.
0: And I mean, that has a lot of historical parallels too.
1: Yeah. That
0: people, you know, you you do. People do that. Yeah. It's a great way to get people to do things. Let's try to get them together for that. And the last one I'll talk about, because I could continue for a long time, <laughs> uh, is self-preservation versus self-actualization. So as a side note, I recently saw the movie Frozen 2. I highly recommend it. I love Frozen 2. It's very good. <laughs> I know you haven't seen it, but you should. It comes out on Blu-ray in a few days. I'm going to get it. <laughs> Frozen 1 was about self-identity. So Frozen 2 is about self-actualization. Uh-huh. Uh, so there's different. Figuring out who you are is the first step. Okay. And then living as you are is the second step. I see. And like actually carrying that out. So Alfred knows who she is, so she doesn't need to find, figure it out. She knows who she is, right? So what she's struggling with is self-preservation, like just staying, right. literally staying alive, versus self-actualization, which is what humans tend to want once their basic needs are met, is the desire to actualize um, wants and aspirations and dreams and ideas. That's what she can't do. Right. And she was a person who could do that before. Right. And I think, for me, thinking about going from a situation where, you know, I have the freedom to self-actualize, right, from going from that to a situation where it's only strictly about preservation is very depressing and
1: very... That's what makes this book... uh scary in, in many mm-hmm. ways because of that. Yeah. And I guess I was gonna say when you were talking about her writing, I'm not as attuned to the writing as you are, not mm-hmm. being an English major. <laughs> However, I think the effect that she a good writing gives you that that you, you, you get into the story more. So it's like mm-hmm. you have a you know, I was very unhappy reading parts of this story. Yeah. Because it's an unhappy story. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Which is what I think she escaped at the end. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thematically, I think that she probably didn't just escape. We can discuss this more off the podcast. <laughs> There's a really easy motif here. If you're writing for your high school English paper, the motif is color. Things are color-coded. <laughs> the color is important literally every time. Anytime anyone says anything about color, it matters. If something's red, it has something to do with the handmaids. And guess what? It's a metaphor. Um, if something's green, it has something to do with Martha's. And guess what? It's a metaphor. Every single time.
1: Uh, it's kind of
0: awesome. I, I mean, I love that kind of consistency for, as an English uh, major.
1: That, um, was, that was a little bit too obvious, but...
0: It's one of those things where it's like, that's for your high school report, you know, the motif is okay. okay. You know, it's, it's not not uh, crazy uh, stuff here.
1: But I suppose, you know, it's like if you, if you want to say, putting people in uniforms makes makes people all the same, so but mm-hmm. you, you kind of reduce the envy kind of... Mm-hmm. As one of deadly sins or whatever. Well, but I think,
0: I think the way they do it with the women is they sort of increase it. Because the society is kind of dependent on the women hating each other. Right? This is, you know, it's kind of dependent on the wives not liking the handmaids. The handmaids not liking the wives. The Martha's not liking the handmaids. There's, you know, if they wanted all of the women to be on equal footing, they would all, they would all be. Hmm. But they're not. And I think, you know, I kind of questioned why the handmaids were red. And I think, um, Evelyn gave us the best answer in, when we went to the first science fiction group. uh uh-huh. um, And she said, you know, it's, it's a color associated with fertility. And that's true. Okay. You know, it, it certainly is, and there's plenty of things that offered sees that are associated with fertility. It's also associated with violence and... Right. Pa- blood. You know, blood. Sin, I guess, in a related way. It's, it's also a color associated with passion. And
1: the prostitution you know, red light districts
0: right but, but that's interesting because the handmaids are supposed to be pure
1: right. in, in, in a way
0: they're non sexual sexual objects so right. they're they're women whose only role is to have sex with someone but they're not supposed to be sexually attractive right. so it's a very interesting like the color choice is very interesting because I would think if you were going to go for like fertility without the sex you'd go for like green, you know, green is like spring, spring. you know, but I don't know. I don't know. It's neat.
1: I just remembered one of the little things that happens in the book where all the handmaids want to get moisturizer. Oh yeah. They steal butter.
0: Yeah, they steal butter and use it.
1: And um, just speaking about not being asexual so they weren't allowed to have any cosmetics or anything
0: Mm -hmm. like that. Um, I think the last thing we're going to do is talk about our favorite Our favorite things in the story, I think we're going to talk about, I don't think we have very similar ones. What was your favorite So I think,
1: well, the fact that she escaped. (laughs) 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 Actually, I like the epilogue, right? Yeah. Because it was kind of an interesting uh, explanation for everything. I think the writing kind of was was very effective, so.
0: Yeah, I love the writing. Um, My favorite thing was the structure of the story. I liked the... I like nonlinear stories. Mm, yeah. Um, I think my other favorite thing we ever read was Arrival or the the, the yeah. Story of Your Life, which was yeah. the short story that arrived the movie right. arrival was based on. That was also nonlinear. I I like nonlinear structures. I find
1: them really interesting. Now it's funny it was but it was done so well that you weren't confused. Like you kind of
0: Yeah. Well no it, it, the, I mean the whole point of using a nonlinear story is so that you you reveal your climaxes to the reader Towards the port and the story where it would naturally be a climax, right? You know, because if if this was a linear time-wise, I mean, so you and I sat here and typed up the you know the linear yeah. plot before we did this. If you were following it linearly, the I guess the climax would be the very very end when she gets into the truck. But the climax there's there's multiple different climaxes. There's how you know. Her actual memory of how her daughter was taken from her ultimately during the right. during the thing there's the these various ceremonies right but the particularly the salvaging being so violent you know there's all, there's there's lots of things, and so what the nonlinear aspect of it allows is for those high drama moments to be closer together in the text right even when they're time wise not close right. together. so if it's done correctly yeah it's it's definitely. It's very effective. It's just like in the story of your life. So
1: everything and well, kind of the, the the epilogue that. was kind of funny. I was kind of actually surprised because I didn't really expect anything like that in the end. Hmm. You know, the the ending of her escaping maybe
0: mm-hmm. to
1: me was a perfect logical ending. There was no.
0: Without the epilogue, we would have. I I think what I like about the epilogue is that it gives more of a realistic tone to her story because it explains why it is how it is, in that it's these tapes. And that's the other thing, too, is the order they explain in the epilogue, like the tapes were discovered, listened to, transcribed, and then ordered, as best as they could manage. Right. But they they couldn't really figure out, you know, they'd have no idea what order she actually recorded them in. And I kind of like that that aspect of the epilogue.
1: There's a sequel now.
0: Yeah, it just came out, right? What's it called? The Testament.
1: Testament. But I I haven't read it, I'm not sure if I'm going to read it.
0: Um, I might read it. One of our friends at the book discussion group said it, it's like quite a, quite a ways in the future off of this. Hmm. So I guess it would be between Alfred's story and the epilogue. Right. Some future
1: Gilead
0: <coughs> situation.
1: Alright, so let's just talk about what we're going to do next.
0: Oh, can I, sorry, can I talk about one more thing? Yeah. I
1: brought it up earlier and told.
0: So the last thing I talk about is this question that the story raises is, can you consent to sex that you have no power to deny? And this is a theme, or a theme, I don't know, issue that also comes up in A Song of Ice and Fire. So I've talked about it a lot before with other people. And it's a really interesting issue, I think. And I don't think there's a clear answer of how the text feels about it. We know how Alfred feels about it um, with the ritual with the commander. She doesn't consider, from what I remember from the text, she doesn't consider it rape because she considers it like, she's consensually participating and to an extent she's she is you know she's not kicking and screaming and trying right. to run and trying right. to scratch anyone or or like physically fighting but she's not because she knows she can't
1: she's living under threat i mean you know right if if, if you don't do this we're going to kill you so yeah it's kind of tough right
0: right so it's similar in in a song of ice and fire uh, or game of thrones um they have the same issue where Daenerys marries Khal Drogo right in the beginning of the series. And they get married and they have sex after they get married. And the question is always, you know, was that... And I mean, this is a question too, it used to be... They used to not think that you could be raped within a marriage, but you can. The question with Daenerys and Khal Drogo was like, well, is it... Was it consensual? And in the books, it's a little bit more gray. In the show, it's pretty obviously a rape in the first episode in the books it's a little bit more gray because Cal Joko basically like waits for her to say yes but she is 13 and he's in his 30s and she couldn't say no because she she could if she had said no it's not like he would have listened
1: well I mean this is kind of a general problem that, that humans have in life that there are certain things that come up in theory you have free will to go one way or the other mm-hmm. but many times you have no choice and you have to act a particular way right right for, for whatever reasons I mean Having gun pressed to your head is one, mm-hmm. right? But uh, there are more subtle, I guess, reasons. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So I mean, it's kind of like you know, if you if you consent to have sex with someone, and you have sex and it's fine, and then in reality that person would not have taken no for an answer. You know, was the set did that nullify the consent you just gave? Even if you didn't know. You couldn't consent uh, that, to
1: it. That's a uh, way to meta.
0: Yeah, <laughs> but I think it's a really interesting question. I think it's the right kind of questions for literature to be asking, mm-hmm. and it's the right kind of issue for literature to be True. to be exploring. I don't know that there
1: is a straight answer. I don't know that we have. Uh, I I think that's probably just whole question of, of morality in general. Mm-hmm. It's like you know, when you know there's a the right thing to do, but if you do it, then you can suffer some very bad consequences. Mm-hmm. What do you do? Right.
0: Right. Well, I think it's also like you know, would you think of the commander as a rapist? You know, when we think of rapists, we think of like violent and right. evil and, and morally debauched and like all of these things. And it's like, you know, I don't know that he would be that I would think of him as a rapist. But well, so it's he, like he, he had sex with her and she could not consent so to it, so was, he kind was of. Peter hits.
1: in uh, Hunger Games a thief? For what? He took bread from his parents and gave it to uh, a
0: well he was supposed to be feeding that bread to the pigs but yeah no i get your point it's it's sort right. of it's it's i think like we don't have enough language yet in the conversation to describe the different layers of this kind of situation and so i think it's very interesting and i think is the kind of thing that literature should be exploring right, right. and i don't know that the answer is it certainly—I wouldn't say it was consensual sex because it, if she couldn't
1: have. But the other, the other way you can take the cultural rel- relativism kind of point of view. Mm-hmm. It just sort of depends what kind of world we live in, right? So, back in the Middle Ages, marrying somebody who was thirteen was just normal and mm-hmm. expected, and nobody thought that was bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, today we don't promote that anymore. Yeah. Well, was it bad then? I don't know. I wasn't then. I was there then. <laughs> But, but that's what I mean. So it's like, you know, some of these things may be absolutes, but some are, are not. Some are relative, to. So in, in, in Gilead, it's perfectly normal for the commander to have sex with a handmaid.
0: That's the point, right? right. That's the whole point.
1: That's, everybody expected it. right? You know, Why why would you even try to avoid it? Mm-hmm. That's the way the world is, you know?
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. So I, I like that. I like that topic being explored. And I like that the narrator has an opinion on mm. it because you don't necessarily have to agree with the
1: narrator. Yeah, so one of the interesting right. things actually she says, uh, it's that the ants kept saying, it's saying, you who lived through the transition, remember what it was like before, mm-hmm. but once you go on, the next generation is not going to know what it was before. Mm-hmm. They're just going to know what it is now, therefore it's going to be just normal. Right,
0: it's going to be easier for them. Right,
1: exactly. Which is kind of the same point, right? So, yeah. you think it's wrong because it was differently been in the past, mm-hmm. but if it's always been this way, Mm-hmm. Right, it's fine.
0: Right, very meta. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I think that is our discussion on the Handmaid's Tale. What's the? What are we doing next? so we pick a book?
1: So we, so I decided. Oh, okay. That <laughs> we're going to do two short stories. Okay. One by Ursula Le Guin. Cool. Okay, good. You know the the ones who. Oh, walk, the
0: ones who walk away from all loss. Right. Oh, I love that story. Yeah, you'll like
1: that. And okay. then I picked a story by Tim Chung whose name I. I can't remember the title of it but it's also an interesting technological innovation how it affects society mm. and it has like two different views of, of the idea and it's really a great story.
0: Um, the ones who walk away from Omalas is like a really cool story and it's, it's a very good story to read in like middle school with kids because it you know, gives you like a great moral dilemma except that there's like a random paragraph in the middle where there's an orgy but other than that it's fine. Okay.
1: <laughs> Um, and maybe after that we can do, like, utopias, utopias everywhere. Yes. Or dystopias, utopias, whatever. Is it a
0: dystopia or a utopia? I don't
1: know. Well, I think this one is probably a dystopia. I don't think there's a utopia for anybody here.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting thing. Because the the commander didn't seem very happy either. No, It's like
1: 1984. Well, at least
0: in 1984 you got the sense that there was the inner party that was benefiting.
1: Sort of, but they were not that... uh, didn't sound that happy hmm.
0: I'm also really interested in the different ways we've discovered in these books that they world builds so we have sit down and read we have sit down and talk to an old man we have have a conference afterwards about it
1: so another one so I think I mentioned I was I started to read play a piano by Kurt Vonnegut mm-hmm. and in it the way that the world built there's a guest from Saudi Arabia who came to look at your town and your factory so you yeah. give him a background. Oh, you know, great.
0: About. Well, that's like Brave New World. They start with like the students yeah, in the beginning. That's right. Yeah, that's like, right. oh, let me explain to you students all about this, this fertilization. Like, okay, cool. I get it. I get it. You made a thing and you want to tell me about it. I get it. <laughs> all right, so all I right. think that's everything for this episode. Um, thank you for listening to this episode of History in Reverse, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye.
1: <laughs> we have speed.
0: We, we have speed. Toy. Why are you wearing headphones and I'm not? Hmm. I don't get headphones.
1: No, I was just checking to make oh. sure that everything. can you hear recording. me
0: while your headphones are on? Yes. Oh, okay. cool thank you. All right, I'm gonna just put the timer on over here. Wait, I mean, if you want to wear the headphones, you can. I'm not, I'm not. No, no, I just want. Shaming to you out of it. Verified. <laughs>
1: things are working. That's oh. Okay. How do I introduce this?